Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I have become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, we're continuing in our series on the impacts of trauma and stress. And we're really trying to focus on the early indicators that alert us that trauma and stress is starting to take a significant toll. The goal we are working toward is to be able to notice these earlier so we can catch them and intervene earlier and prevent ourselves and others from landing in my office or worse. Your job as a first responder or frontline worker comes with risks. We know that. It isn't new information. And no one is better than the risks. Like I've said so many times on the show before, nobody comes out unscathed. Nobody. So given that the risks are real and that the promise is that you will be scathed by it, how do we minimize the scathing or the harm to you that results from it? That's really what we're trying to tangle with here is how do we contain the scope of the impact? How do we limit the extent to which your beautiful, meaningful life, along with the lives of the people you care about, like your partner, kids, and family, how do we keep them from being detrimentally impacted by the toll that the work exerts? We've talked so far in this series about several early indicators, including hypervigilance, being on hyperalert and the resulting fatigue, dissociation, your brain tuning you out to manage the degree of stress it's experiencing for too long, and nightmares and flashbacks, intrusive ways your brain works at making sense of what it's been through. Today, we are talking about yet another indicator, and total honesty, I think this is likely the most prevalent and most salient early indicator of them all. I see this one showing up more in my own life and in the lives of those I work with in the early phases of burnout, occupational, and traumatic stress than any other category. And here it is. Numbing. If you listened to the episode on dissociation from a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that dissociation is kind of connected to numbing. Dissociation is a mechanism by which our brain overrides us and tunes us out so it can take a break from the immense stress response cycle and hypervigilance it was not meant to deal with on an ongoing basis. Similarly, numbing is a mechanism by which we choose to check ourselves out. 
It's also closely related to avoidance, the desire to not go near discomfort or sit in pain or suffering for any length of time. I mentioned a moment ago that numbing is one of the most prevalent and significant of early indicators. The other thing I should mention is that it's also one of the most ignored, justified, denied, rationalized, and otherwise inappropriately excused of the indicators. And why is that? Well, because the things we tend to use to numb tend to be largely socially acceptable tools for distraction, comfort, and or quote-unquote coping. They're behaviors and activities that make us feel better. They calm us, except that they aren't being used to strategically support us. Rather, they're being used to temporarily mitigate our discomfort, interrupt our ability to process in favor of something that feels good for the moment, and over the long term, cuts us off from ourselves by distancing us gradually from interacting with our own thoughts, feelings, needs, worries, and more. I'm going to repeat that one more time. When we are using numbing actions, they aren't being used to strategically support us. Rather, they're being used to temporarily mitigate our discomfort and interrupt our ability to process in favor of something that feels good for the moment. And over the long term, when we continue to use these, they cut us off from ourselves by distancing us gradually from interacting with our own thoughts, feelings, needs, worries, and more. So what does numbing look like? Well, the easy ones to name are likely the ones you would think of as obvious and would include things like drinking and drug use. I would also include self-harming behaviors and extreme type behaviors like constant partying, dangerous promiscuity, and related activities. These types of behaviors tend to serve us by temporarily chemically diluting our feelings of suffering or temporarily chemically enhancing our feelings of elation in an effort to drown out our experiences of hardship that we feel ill-equipped to process effectively. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a glass of wine while I watch trashy chick flicks on a Friday night. I'm not saying that drinking is bad or that drugs and medication are bad or that having a good time and enjoying sex are bad. What I am saying is that when these things are used in excess or used explicitly to avoid our own experience, they can rapidly become problematic coping and lead into addictions that can be incredibly difficult and painful to break. And I think we all know and see in others around us the tremendous catastrophic effect that addictions can have on people's lives. People lose partners, access to their kids, relationships with loved ones, the ability to do their job safely, and so much more. The cost can get really steep really quickly. But beyond the obvious and extreme forms of numbing, there are a ton of other ways we numb all the time. How much time have you spent scrolling on your phone? 
Does that time increase or decrease when your stress is higher or it's been a tough day at work? How much TV have you been watching? Again, does this amount go up or down when it's been a hard day? How much have you spent on online shopping? How many bags of chips have you eaten? Or here's maybe a more timely one. How many candies have you stolen from your kid's Halloween stash, hoping they won't notice? The truth is, numbing can look like a lot of really common, normal behaviors. And more than that, they can look like behaviors that when used a very specific way, can actually be a component of healthful coping. But when taken too far, become a new problem all their own. Recently, I had a chat with my daughter's kindergarten teacher. My daughter is the oldest in her class and is a force of nature by personality. I've been told the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Her teacher told me that they've been working a lot on leadership. She strained when she said the word. I asked if that was a whole class thing. No, it was not a whole class thing. My daughter is working on leadership. I asked what that means, working on leadership, and I was told that my fiery girl possesses an incredible amount of power over her classroom dynamic, and that she could either use those powers for good or for evil. Those were the teacher's exact words. They, apparently, are learning to use her powers for good by helping kids to listen and pay attention rather than get into silly moods that have every child bouncing off the walls. Side note, I am so grateful not to be a kindergarten teacher, and I believe every single one of them deserves a freaking parade. I could not do that job. I share this story because, as I've mentioned in other episodes, adults are just children in tall bodies. And much like my five-year-old daughter, we have to decide if we will use our powers for good or for evil. Will we make choices that maximize the value something offers us? Or will we take it to extremes where it suddenly has power over us? Can we work to use tools to serve us? Or will we overuse them to the point that we are serving them? Whether it's scrolling your phone or having a drink, these things can be nice, self-caring actions that can communicate to our brain and body that we acknowledge ourselves and acknowledge our need for a little bit of space or distance or distraction from what felt hard and welcoming of some chill, some enjoyment, some treating. But when it goes too far and becomes habitual to the point that we don't know how to cope without it, exclusive to the point that we don't know how else to cope if not it, or excessive to the point that it absorbs us and leaves little else, we have a problem. And this is where the tricky part lies, defining where we move from decently healthful normal coping into problematic, unhealthy, addictive numbing. Because most of us start many of these activities in the normal healthy zone. They tend to be occasional and enjoyable. And then hard times hit, so we seek out more enjoyment to balance the hardship. And we find that it feels good to be engrossed in binge-watching old TV reruns on Netflix. 
or that drinking a couple more glasses than normal feels like a nice buzz instead of the anxious feelings I came home with. The things feel like they take the edge off. But as with all things addictive and how our brains work, little by little, we develop tolerance. And slowly but surely, we need more and more to get the same or less of an effect. To feel more numb, we need to do more of the numbing. And suddenly, it has taken on a life of its own. What had been justifiable for a moment turns into a monster of our own making. And that's the thing. It becomes a monster not only because of the addictions that can ensue and the costs associated with those, but because it also keeps the problem churning. Whatever you were numbing from is still there, sitting on a shelf in your body, screaming for your attention while you work to turn the volume up on the TV to drown it out. And then you go to sleep, wake up tomorrow, add more difficulty and stress and trauma in a job that is facing it all the time, adding to the shelf, and then going home and doing it all over again. It accumulates and accumulates, and when the problem is so big that it can no longer be ignored, it is also so much more complex and festering after being left so long, and the work to recover and heal from it all is so much more difficult than it needed to be. And it's all to avoid, to not touch what aches in us to not look at what is crying and hurting in us, to not deal with what we're afraid of. And not because we don't know we should, or we don't think it's important, although those might be reasons that crop up for some people some of the time, but most of the time when I ask people why they didn't interact with their pain, the answer is that they didn't know how. We are ill-equipped to navigate our own pain. We haven't been taught practically what it looks like to process our experiences effectively. So we stuff it and we numb it. And time passes and we and the people in our lives suffer for it. And on and on it goes. Behind the Line is sponsored by Beating the Breaking Point. Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, This program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot. Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. 
two years ago when I first started this podcast, I did a series on how to process, specifically related to how to process and make sense of the pandemic. Check out season one, episodes 15 to 18 for a recap. Really, at the heart of the idea of processing is the understanding that humans are wired for stories. We talked about this last week around nightmares. We are designed in such a way that our brains desperately want and need to make sense of things that happen to us and around us. We need stories that fill in the gaps and round out the edges. We can face all kinds of hard, scary, sad things. But if we can tell a story about us that feels like it makes sense and meaning of it all, we will tend to be able to let it settle over time and go on with life relatively unencumbered by the events. But when we fail to tell a story, the story will try to tell itself. And it will always try to do so by putting us at the center. What I mean by that is that if we don't take an active role in analyzing, writing, and shaping the story, the default story will tend to be told by our greatest insecurities, fears, and beliefs of personal inadequacy. And this is part of what contributes to many of our stories feeling traumatic for so long after an experience. We can't put it to bed because it still feels like it says so much about how we failed, how we aren't enough, how we can't hack it. Our brain feels on the hook for keeping it alive in our heads so that we don't fuck it up again, so we don't make the same mistake, so we don't blow it like we always do. And yet, I can say that of the multitude of stories I have heard Over the years working in a job where I hear everyone's internal storytelling, our default stories are almost never the most accurate version of this story. They are biased and they need us to take an active role in sussing out the bias and retelling the story through a more accurate lens. When we let default stories happen, And when we ignore them and let them build up over time, they start to build on each other and serve as confirmation bias for one another. See, there's another time you blew it. Oh, look, there's one more. Holy smokes, look at all of these failures you've amassed. If that's what's happening under the surface, is it any wonder why you would want to numb out more and more and more? This is exactly why we need to talk about this and catch it early, because this can be totally doable if we catch it early and intervene. What if every day after work, you granted yourself permission to enjoy a glass of wine and a TV show, but then after that one episode, you set aside 20 minutes to reflect on the day and intentionally decide how to tell the story of the day to yourself. What went well? What didn't? What did you do about what didn't go well? How do you feel about the decision you made to handle it that way? Is there more you could have done or some learning you can take forward? What can you be grateful for? What can you acknowledge about yourself, your efforts, and your value? 
sit with these questions. Let yourself mull through them and let them build a story of who you are. I bet if you do this, you'll find you'll start to discover some theme about yourself. I'm someone who shows up. I'm someone who doesn't give up. I'm someone who cares deeply. I'm someone who, what? What will it be for you? If you can engage in this consistently beginning right now, you will be taking an action that invests significantly in your wellness and pays big dividends in reducing your risks for numbing that becomes problematic. The other piece I would encourage you to be reflective of is your needs. What do you feel like you need and why? What would serve that need best? If you need some time to numb, that can be okay if it's intentional and strategic and caring. But it can't be to avoid on an ongoing basis. That is a recipe for trouble. I certainly have days when I decide I need to numb out. And I may have a couple glasses of wine and watch more TV than I usually would allow myself. But it's with the promise that I will circle back to myself tomorrow once I've taken this space to breathe. And I always keep that promise. It's a key part of how I build relationship with myself to be trustworthy, reliable, and keeping to my internal promises. One of my best indicators that I'm struggling more and needing to be attentive and intervening is when I notice myself wanting to be on my phone more. When I feel irritated by people interrupting me when I'm mindlessly scrolling. When I would rather be scrolling or watching a show than having the important conversation my husband or kids are trying to have with me. The desire to distance and numb out is an alert system that lets me know I'm not doing as okay as I could be. And it puts me into action looking at what I've let slide from my wellness plan and what needs to get set back up or set up differently to meet my ever-evolving needs and the ever-evolving demands of life. This isn't a perfect science. It is for sure more of an art. There is an ebb and flow, and it asks us to be pausing, reflective, and interpretive of what's happening for us, what we need in it, and how we can serve those needs most effectively. As an art, it asks us to confront and make sense of pain and suffering. But it also moves us to places of calm and beauty and joy. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. To those who love this podcast and share about it, to those you know, I want to say a huge thank you. I so value you helping us to make a difference for other frontline helpers, who risk so much to serve our communities. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. 
We make all of our resources available to you because the work you do matters. But way more than that, you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.